0: morning everyone if you have your Bible with you please open it to uh, Matthew chapter 28 if you don't have a Bible with you uh, feel free to grab one from the pew in front of you if you grab one of the red ones you can find Matthew 28 on page 706 and if there's a black Bible in front of you then you can find it on page 1127 Matthew chapter 28 I'm going to read from verse 16 to 20. This is what scripture says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, you truly are the greatest of all beings, and we thank you that you've given us your word. To reveal yourself and we pray Lord that as we consider Jesus this morning our hearts would be full of worship of adoration of praise and that our hands and our feet would be set in the path of obedience meet with us we pray Lord and do what mere words can't do and shape and fashion our hearts according to your will in Jesus name amen if you're 12 years old or younger, can you raise your hand for me? Let me see who's here. Okay. So you guys will be able to relate with, uh, with this illustration. When I was a kid, my, thank you. When I was a kid, uh, my parents, as most parents do, gave me rules to obey. Uh, things like look both ways before you cross the road or eat your vegetables before you can get up from dinner or do your homework before you're allowed to go outside and play. And I remember one day going to my mom, as I'm sure some of you have, and saying to her, Mom, I love when you give me rules. Please give me more and more rules. I'm just kidding, I never said that. That's not true. Actually, on the contrary, uh, I hated a lot of my parents' rules. I felt like they were just trying to Uh, make me miserable and keep me from having fun. But when we look in the book of Psalms, King David seemed to have a different view of rules and commands. He says things like this in Psalm 119, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And in another passage, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. So I wonder, what did... King David know about commands and rules that I didn't as a child. Maybe he understood that rules, more than just merely existing for the sake of ordering our lives and compelling us to do certain things, that they exist beyond that to reveal the character of the rule giver or the command giver. That's something that I didn't realize as a child. Uh, It wasn't until certain events happened in my life that I began to learn this lesson. For example, it wasn't until I was riding my bike and didn't look both ways before I crossed the road and got hit by a car, which that is a true story, Uh, then I realized, wow, my mom and dad care about me. They just wanted me to be safe. They gave me that rule as an expression of their care for me. Or it wasn't until I got a bit older and I understood how food impacts our body and our health that uh, I realized that my parents just wanted me to be healthy and happy, and so they gave me those rules about eating my vegetables. Or when they insisted that I do my homework, uh, they wanted me to learn the importance of discipline and working hard, even at things that I don't particularly enjoy, uh, because that would be something that's imperative and important to success, an, an important component of a successful life. So when coming from a good source, with good motives, commands are a means of the command giver to express love to the command receiver now that i'm a bit older and hopefully a bit wiser i can honestly thank my parents for the rules and the commands that they gave me as i was a, as a child because i now understand that those rules were evidence of their love and their care for me as opposed to just a constraint on my life And I wonder if you sometimes feel that way about the commands in the Bible. There are some in in the Bible that we can quickly see the wisdom of and understand to be good and right and beneficial for us. But there are others that maybe we wish weren't there since they call for changes to our lives that are inconvenient, uncomfortable, burdensome maybe, constraining. I know I sometimes feel that way. Uh, Today, we're looking together at a passage in Matthew, commonly referred to as the Great Commission. It's one of the last commands that Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension and return to heaven. And many of us, I'm sure, have heard this passage before. And yet, if we survey our own lives, and perhaps some of the lives of Christians that we know, uh, it becomes evident that probably far too few of us are actively obeying it. So what I want to do together today is look a little bit deeper into the command we find here. I want to spend most of our time looking beyond the imperative, the command, and looking more at the implied indicatives in the background. So to pull from the illustration from my childhood, I want to look, more, I want, I want to look beyond the command to look both ways before you cross the road, and I want to look at the heart of care and desire for safety that's behind it. So we're going to call them implied indicatives. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So commands in the Bible are known as imperatives. These are orders which are calling for us to submit and obey. And there is one here in our passage, and we'll look at that towards the end of our time together. And on the other hand, there are indicatives. And indicatives are statements of reality that describe to us some truth to simply be beheld. And when those indicatives are about Jesus Christ, they provoke in the heart of Christians adoration and worship and obedience. And so that's my prayer for our time together, is that as we behold the implied indicatives in these few verses, our hearts will be filled with love for Jesus and our motivation to obey the command that we find nestled here in this passage would be a natural byproduct. So let's look at these implied indicatives in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And then we're going to circle back at the end and focus on the one imperative, which is to make disciples. So the first implied indicative that I want to look at in this passage is the authority of Jesus. Uh, In verse 18 of our passage, Jesus plainly states this reality. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is a glorious, glorious statement. The one that we Christians know as our Lord, as our brother, as our friend, as the captain of our army, as the savior of our souls. This is the one who has supreme authority over everyone and everything in the universe. But I want to take a moment to look at how Jesus exercises his authority. Because this type of authority, this supreme authority in the hands of a tyrant is a terrible thing. But when we see what Jesus chooses to do with his authority... We get to know more of his impeccable character and trustworthy character. So I want to look at four ways in which Jesus exercises his authority. First, he exercises it to triumph over his enemies. Our passage opens with these words. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And I think here that Matthew, the author, is drawing our attention to something or someone that's missing. Uh, almost 30 times in the gospel accounts, we hear of this group of disciples referred to as the 12. These were those who closely followed Jesus for most of his earthly ministry. And for the first time, they're referred to as the 11. Someone is missing here. And I think that Matthew here is directing our attention to that missing disciple and the events that transpired between the time of his departure and their, their meeting now on the mountain. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew 26, we read this. And when they, which is Jesus and his disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And now here in Matthew 28, we're at this meeting in Galilee that Jesus had foretold. But just as Jesus predicted in chapter 26, his disciples would all abandon him within a few hours of that statement. And he would be left to face his enemies all alone. Judas, the betrayer, would soon return with the henchmen of the religious leaders to arrest him. He would then be subjected to the false evidence gathering of those religious leaders to make a case against him. Then he would be subjected to the people-pleasing governor who cared more about his own preservation than the truth. Then the furious crowds who just days before hailed him as the son of David now call for his execution and the release of a proven criminal. So like an army, all of these opposers gathered together to put an end to him once and for all. And there he is by himself, and the scripture describe him as silent like a sheep to the slaughter. They ultimately carried out this twisted, this wicked plan and killed Jesus. And they thought that that was the end of the story, but little did they know, the whole time Jesus was exercising his authority to walk in the plan that had been predestined and foreordained by the Father, as we learn about in Acts 4. And this opposition to his authority didn't just begin at the betrayal of Judas or the jealousy of the religious leaders, but Pastor Pete read for us from Genesis 12 and 15, uh, one of the earliest instances in the Bible where God clearly lays out his plan to accomplish salvation through this descendant of Abraham and work towards his exaltation among all the world. And even from then, throughout the whole Old Testament, we see one instance after another of people both inside Israel and outside of Israel uh, seeking to thwart the purposes and the work and the plan of God. But just like Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him what have you done so days after jesus's execution he would be revealed in glorious radiance having conquered every one of his enemies and this is good news for us christians now in our day just like in that day uh, there are false disciples that seek to betray jesus and his truth every day There are religious leaders who want glory for themselves and seek to stomp out the real way and the real truth of Jesus. The society at large has had enough of Jesus and want to loose themselves from the constraints of his word. And the self-preserving governments here and around the world go along with the will of the people and legislate things that are abominable to God. And so today, just like then, Jesus has absolute authority and his people, therefore, have no reason to shrink back for fear of persecution or being ostracized like Peter and others did after Jesus' arrest. But instead, we have every reason to live boldly for the one who has all authority, even when it doesn't seem to be so at first glance. Those who follow Jesus in obedience always are on the right side of history. So don't let the media or the God mockers in your life convince you otherwise. A day is coming, says the scriptures, that every knee will bow to his authority. And on that day you will rejoice that you gave your life to making disciples of the Savior who perhaps at at times seems to be losing the battle. So he has all authority over all people and all nations of the world. And should they all gather together and assemble against him and bring war against him, Psalm 2 tells us what his response would be. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Let the fact that Jesus gave this commission after having conquered every one of his enemies by his death give us confidence to follow him in obedience down the Calvary Road. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus has authority to conquer every one of his opposers and the opposers of his people. Secondly, he also uses this is authority to lay down his life that's the second one this aspect of or this way that he uses authority ought to create in us a deep trust of our savior he's not the type of sovereign who sits afar off and in, is indifferent to our trials or needs while issuing commands from his throne above no he is the type of king who himself suits up for battle gets on the battlefield and fights on behalf of his people. John 15 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And here in our passage, Jesus is about to issue a command, an imperative, that will consume his disciples for the rest of their lives. It will govern their every decision, their ambitions, their plans. And for many of them, who are hearing these words from Jesus in Matthew 28, It will lead to their death. But he demonstrates by his life and by his death that he loves them beyond words and therefore could be trusted and followed, even into difficulty, even into opposition, and even into death. He tells the disciples in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So when we might doubt the wisdom of God, in commanding us to open our mouths and tell the world about the salvation that is found in him alone, and choose rather to interject our own wisdom, which might say, but I'll be the weird person, the Bible thumper in my neighborhood, that no one will take seriously, or I'll be passed up for that promotion because I'm seen as the religious zealot in the office, or that obedience will mean leaving behind the comfort of home and friends and family if I were to move across the world to make disciples in a, re- in a region who has yet to hear about the good news, let us remember that the same one who gives this command is the same one who has lavished his love on us at the highest cost to himself, his own life. This is the kind of command giver we are considering today. One who does what is best for us at great cost to himself and therefore can be trusted when he commands us to live in a way that carries with it great cost to us. The third way in which Jesus exercises authority is or his authority is demonstrated, is his authority to command the worship of all the world. This God-man, Jesus, who was born in the suburbs of Bethlehem, is singularly worthy of worship from every creature on the planet. The trees, the winds, the waves, the stars, the planets, and animals, they all praise Jesus every day by doing what they were created to do. This is why I love having large windows in our sanctuary. You might see me sometimes just gazing out the windows while we're singing, and I'm just considering all of creation that we're joining in with in our praise. That We're joining the chorus of praise to our maker. It's good and it's right that we do so. We were made to do so. And so here Jesus in this passage is going to issue a command, the Great Commission, and in so doing he's allowing us to participate in the calling of humans to return to their creative purpose of living to enjoy and glorify God with their lives. This Jesus is not a tribal God who is worthy of the worship of a handful of people in one part of the world. But he is, in fact, the one which Hebrews 1 tells us upholds the universe by the word of his power and by whom, according to Colossians 1, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. But because of the disease of sin, all of us descendants of Adam have been born with a twisted heart that leads us away from God. But in the Great Commission, Jesus vests his authority into us, his people, who have been transformed by his his gospel to call the lost sheep home to everlasting fellowship, with the greatest being in all the universe. This is what Jesus has done with his authority. This is a great king, a great ruler. Behold this indicative of Jesus' authority and let this truth simmer in your heart until it boils over into your mouth in the forms of evangelism and disciple-making. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what we will now see as our second implication in this great commission is that Jesus is so so generous the generosity of jesus certainly god could have chosen to gather his elect to himself in any way he chose as king of the universe with all authority has no need of partnering with believers to finish the mission of calling his redeemed home but in this commission we see the generosity of jesus in a few ways one we see his generosity in his sharing his inheritance with us his brothers and sisters Jesus came to this earth with a very specific mission and a very specific reward. He came, as Mark 10.45 says, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a mission that brought even Jesus to trembling and sorrow, which we read about as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane back in Matthew 26. But he pressed on. Why? Certainly, it was because of his allegiance and devotion to the Father and his ultimate desire to do the Father's will, even above his own. But also, there was a reward at the finish line that motivated Jesus. We read the prophecy in Psalm 2, which is echoed in Hebrews 1, where God the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. This is what Hebrews 12 calls the joy that was set before him, which enabled him to endure the cross, and be faithful to the end. The joy of redeeming, as Titus says, a people for himself who are zealous for good works. So he finished the mission and now has the joy of receiving his reward from the Father, the nations. We would expect then that once Jesus has accomplished this task set out for him and was vested with all authority as the God-man, that the next words in Matthew 28 would be, I therefore am going into all the world. But he doesn't say that. He says he has all authority and therefore we are to go into all the world. This is an amazing statement about our union with Christ. We are so united to him that his inheritance is our inheritance. The people that he worked for and laid down his life for, we have the privilege of going into all the world to gather in. And when on the last day, when all the redeemed stand before the king, like we read a little bit about in Revelation, in everlasting joy and worship, we who put our hand to the work of making disciples in this life will share in his joy over the sheep that we had the privilege of calling out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this great commission is a great invitation to share in the joy of the last day, which ought to motivate present day obedience, to live for him and call others to do the same. So, Jesus shares his inheritance of the nations. He also shares his righteousness with sinners. This is what's being pip- uh, pictured in baptism, in the baptizing of those who respond in re- repentance and faith in the gospel. Just as Jesus, being baptized back in Matthew 3, was his identifying with sinful people to fulfill all righteousness so his allowance of sinners to be baptized in the name of the Trinity is a picture of our being united to him with all the benefits of his righteousness. In the gospel, those who are at enmity with God and under his just judgment participate in his death, his resurrection, and are washed clean to stand holy and blameless in his sight. Baptism is a joyous occasion that reminds us of the grace of God that has done everything necessary to secure a spot, in his kingdom of righteousness and purity. And though we have all fallen short of the glory of God, in the gospel we are made whiter than snow, and his command to baptize is an expression of his generosity in sharing his own merits with his people. We didn't lift a finger to attain this righteousness. standing. Up. But Jesus, in his generosity, does on our behalf what we cannot He is generous beyond imagination, and I I wonder if this morning you sit here and you don't know the peace that comes from God through trusting in the perfect righteousness and the finished work of Christ. I want to urge you to turn your heart to him. In him is the righteousness that you need to be reconciled to God, the righteousness that you can never attain by your own religious or moral acts. No amount of church-going or holy living will do it. But simple trust in the Savior will grant you life and the forgiveness of sins this very moment. But we must only let go of sin that keeps us from truly living and look to God and the mercy and the grace that he has stored up in Jesus to wash away our sins and make us a new creation, fit for communion with God both now and forever. He will receive those and only those who in humility seek him for salvation, and he loves to give that salvation. He is generous and will give his righteousness if you will only sincerely ask him for it. He shares his righteousness with his people. Third thing that demonstrates the generosity of Jesus, that he shares the fellowship of the Trinity with believers. We heard some of that even in Peter's prayer this morning. We see in the Great Commission that Jesus shows his generosity in sharing with true repentance, the fellowship of the Trinity. In baptizing believers in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we are seeing pictured a glorious reality. There is an invitation for true worshipers to enter into the joyous fellowship that has existed for all of eternity between the members of the Trinity. Listen to this shocking passage from John 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples. After asking for a number of things on their behalf, he says these words. These are blank. He says this, I do not ask these things for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There is no higher joy than that which exists between the members of the Trinity in their everlasting fellowship. And when we put our hand to the work of preaching the gospel and making disciples, we ourselves enter further into that joy and invite others into that joy. The source of all light and life, the source of all joy and happiness, fellowships with us and with all those who turn from sin to him. This is great news to spread both near and far. So Jesus is generous in that he shares the fellowship of the Trinity with believers. And lastly, we see his generosity in sharing his power to live holy. Having been so corrupted by the fall that we are unable to do that which our conscience and the Word of God says that we ought to do and refrain from doing that which we ought not to do, here in the Great Commission, we see Jesus give an impossible task. How can we teach sinners to obey all that Jesus commands, as he says here in our passage? How can one who is at enmity with God submit to his will? How can an adversary become an ally? They can't. Other than by the supernatural power of God's spirit. So nestled in the command to teach others to obey the word of God is the promise of supplied power needed to do so. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul who praises God for showing himself faithful and generous in supplying the power of a spirit to convert those in Thessalonica. He says this, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you. Listen to this. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. As we open our mouths to testify on Christ's behalf, we are positioning ourselves to witness the spirit of the living God work in hearts to create conviction of sin and repentance and faith and obedience. Psalm 103 says he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. But in his generosity, he gives not only his truth as a lamp to our feet, but his spirit and his word, which is sufficient for all life and godliness. Listen to the words of 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine Nature. Are you starting to see this generous Savior? He has all authority and expresses it in the benevolent acts of salvation. And in His generosity, He lavishes upon us and on those who we evangelize to such abundant goodness. I want to look at the third and last implied indicative here. The nearness of Jesus. Jesus allows those who live to make disciples, to have, in a sense, special access to his presence. It was devastating to the 12 disciples that Jesus would one day depart from the earth. He mentioned it a number of times during his earthly ministry, and each time he was met with either unbelief, confusion, or sadness. They had come to know him, as John 6 says, as the Holy One in whom are the words of everlasting life. And they left everything to follow them. So we can understand how perplexing it would be that their rabbi was going to leave them shortly. But Jesus tells them that this is best for them. That after his departure, his spirit would come and communicate his very presence to their souls. And here in our passage, we see that this presence manifests itself in a unique way to those who walk in obedience to him and partner with him in his mission. I wonder, do you want to walk more closely with God? Talk about him. Do you want to experience the joy of nearness and the delight of fellowship with Jesus Christ? Go tell someone about his good news. And here in our passage, we see that this presence manifests itself to those who walk in obedience to him and partner with him in his mission. You've probably known this joy. If you've overcome the fear of rejection or being ridiculed by others and opened your mouth to tell someone about the Savior then you know the joy that exists and the sense of nearness you have to Jesus in these moments. When you demonstrate your allegiance to the invisible God, there is a sense in which he becomes visible to the eyes of your heart and you rejoice that you are his and that by his grace you love him more than the approval of man. Of course, we want everyone that we share the gospel with to respond in repentance and faith, but there is also a sense in which there is a joy to be had regardless of anyone's response to our gospel preaching. A joy that reaffirms the authenticity of our claims to belong to him. The more we know God in our personal communion with him, in his word and in prayer, the more we want to tell others about him. And the more we tell others about him, the more we want to know him. It's this beautiful upward spiral into greater and greater heights of fellowship with him. Listen to how the disciples John and Peter respond in Acts 4 after being arrested for preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. They were being obedient to the Great Commission. And things didn't turn out the way, uh, in a way that we would describe as a success. After being warned to stop preaching, this is how they responded. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. They knew Jesus. That's all that mattered. They didn't care who approved of them. They didn't care who threatened them. They believed that Jesus was alive and reigning, and so they refused to back down from obeying the commission. I wonder if we, if you and I, have that same confidence in Jesus' present-day rule over the world and his sure final coming victory. In the very next chapter, again, these disciples were arrested for the same crime. But this time they were beaten and threatened before being released. And when they left from there the second time, We read this. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They just couldn't help it. They were unwaveringly convinced of the claims of Jesus and his authority, and they knew the joy of fellowship with Jesus, which far surpassed the sorrow of being arrested, ridiculed, mocked, beaten, persecuted, or even killed. This is a joy that Christ holds out to all of us. This week, this joy is held out to you. This very day, in fact, it's held out to you. Don't you want it? Make it your aim to speak of Christ often, and you will increasingly walk in this joy of nearness to Jesus. When you're talking with that neighbor... Or that coworker, or friend, or parent at the park or daycare, or student, or grocery store cashier, or grandchild, or boss, or stranger on the bus or subway. Jesus holds out to you greater depths of fellowship and joy in Him on the other side of sharing the gospel. So here we see three. Beautiful, glorious, implied indicatives in our passage. Now I want to circle back and actually look at the commission. There's only one command in this passage, and it's a very simple one. Two words. Make disciples. And when we boil it down, it's really basic and easy to understand. A disciple is one who follows Jesus. Therefore, to make disciples is to do what we can with the help of God to help others follow Jesus. God has laid out in his word the narrow way that leads to life. And so we, as his ambassadors, are called to go and reach people who are on the broad way and help them find their way to the narrow way. We do this by living in light of the good news, as a living epistle for all to read, and by speaking the good news when we have opportunity. And for all of us in this room, being in different stations in life, it will take different forms based on our life and our context into which God has placed us. For some of us, it could look like engaging with co-workers in love and praying for opportunities and courage to go against the grain and unashamedly speak of Jesus. For some, it means moving you and your family into a part of the city where there are few Christians and little witness for Christ in order that you might be a tangible expression by your life and words of the grace of God. For some here, I pray, it will mean considering parts of the world that are yet unreached with the good news. Where the name of Jesus has never even been heard, let alone the good news that comes along with it. And moving your professional life to that place in order that you might be a witness there. To reach those lost sheep and call them home on behalf of God. Others here, I pray, feel a sense of burden to make it their full-time Ambition for their life to serve as a cross-cultural missionary, to go somewhere that is least evangelized in the world and disciple and plant churches in a remote part of the world. Whatever form it takes, don't discount your ability right now to begin to obey this command. Suggest to a friend that you read a good book, a good gospel-centered book together, like What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert or Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Or maybe you can host a Bible study for your neighbors to look into the scriptures and to explore their questions about the faith. Be intentional in the lunchroom at work to move beyond the typical small talk of the raptors and the weekend into meaningful conversation about life and eternity. And pray each morning that God would give you open eyes to see the opportunities around you to speak of his great love for the world As we heard from Genesis 12, God intends to bless the world through the Savior he has sent. And he sends you now into the world to carry that blessing to them. Let's pray together. Lord, apart from your grace, we can do nothing. You are the vine and we are the branches. We cannot bear fruit except that you produce life in us, that you shape us according to the mind of Christ that you burden us with the things that burdened your that burden your heart and move us with compassion for the lost even as you have compassion for the lost so i pray lord that you would work in our hearts to fill us with high thoughts of you greater allegiance to you greater devotion to you that we would be in awe of all that you have done in the way that you have benevolently exercised your authority to bless us the way that you have generously shared yourself with us, your righteousness and your life and your power. And I pray, Lord, that as we are filled with more of you, we would be faithful to live for you and to make disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.